This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to the Thompson Coburn podcast series, Talking Pop Health. I'm Eric Tower, a healthcare transactional attorney here at Thompson Coburn. Our last speaker was Dr. Sadna Peralker, Senior Vice President and National Medical Director at Seagal Consulting. In that podcast, we discussed on-site clinics, wearable devices, wellness programs, and medical management program design. Today, I have with me Dr. Rishi Sika from Sutter Health. Rishi, welcome to Talking Pop Health. To kick things off, why don't you start off telling us uh, about your career and a little bit about what you've done? Okay, great. Thanks, Eric. And it's it's really wonderful to be talking with you and, and to have this opportunity to reflect. I actually did not start my career in healthcare. I actually started out in business and did my undergraduate work at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And while I was going through my program there, the kind of classes that really interested me a lot when I was at Wharton were my classes in healthcare economics and healthcare management. And I thought that the best way for me to be able to have an impact in that industry might be by going to medical school and by becoming a physician and being able to really combine these areas around both business and medicine. So at the very last minute, I had a change in career path and was fortunate enough to get a partial scholarship to go to medical school at the Mayo Clinic, which proved to be a really wonderful experience for many reasons. One of the interesting things about the curriculum at Mayo is actually get about five months off in your third year to do anything you want and uh, ended up actually spending those five months in Atlanta at the Prudential Center for Healthcare Research. And that was actually an opportunity for me to get my first exposure on data and analytics and learn how to program and do statistical analyses. It was also my first exposure to disease management. After medical school, I did an internship in internal medicine at St. Vincent's in New York, did an emergency medicine residency at Boston Medical Center, formerly Boston City Hospital, stayed on as an attending in Boston for about four years, and then ended up going to Advocate Christ, which is a level one trauma center on the south side of Chicago, and then ended up working in the emergency department and very fortunate to go through a series of progressively increasing management roles, first around quality improvement in the emergency department, then around quality and performance improvement for the hospital, and then taking on a role at the system level for advocate healthcare, where I was at the enterprise level for six years, the last three as senior vice president of clinical operations for the organization. I've been with Sutter Health now for about two and a half years. It'll be three years in February of 2020 and very different experiences and very different roles. Oh, that's that's great. Yeah, you have a truly impressive background, but you already know I think that. Why don't we talk a little bit about what you're doing with Sutter and Sutter's approach to population health and what sets Sutter kind of apart from everyone else? In my role at Sutter, I'm president of System Enterprises, and I oversee a portfolio of businesses that represent, I think, two things. One is that they care for patients, particularly in non-traditional ways across our geographies. So oversee our walk-in care clinics, our home health and hospice operations, our ambulatory surgery centers. There's business lines they oversee, such as all of our work in mental health, pharmacy, and lab. In all, it represents about a third of the operations of the organization. 
About a year ago or so, we decided to stand up a new division, and that is referred to as Sutter Population Health Services. And we recruited our first chief population health officer for the organization. He started with us in February of this year. We regard population health or population health management as the clinical infrastructure that supports high-quality, cost-effective care with appropriate utilization in our managed care populations. So if you kind of break that very sort of operational definition up into pieces, you know, we have a target population there. We're talking about our patients who are in managed care agreements, I think particularly capitated agreements. For us, you're talking about the what. The what is sort of the clinical wraparound. And then you're looking at a target state, which is, you know, great quality and appropriate utilization. Well, you're covering a lot of ground. I just want to go back and, and figure out a couple things that you said. First of all, you referenced capitated agreements. By that, do you mean that you're taking full cap for a large portion of your patients at this point? We are not taking it for a significant portion of our patient population. I'd have to go back and look up the number, but we have basically either full capitation agreements or just professional capitation agreements on the professional side of the business. Overall, it is at this time not making up a majority of our business in that regard, but still it is material and something that we need to continue to develop the ability to successfully execute on. Sure. Is the plan to go full cap? I think that we have established a 10-year outlook that we need to continue to move a greater proportion of our reimbursement into value-based care constructs. It isn't necessarily all just cap. It can be some ACO and shared savings constructs. It can also be bundled payments as well. But probably a, a good portion of that is going to be in, in sort of capitation. Right. So you're on the, the beginning of the journey, as it were. Yeah. The organization has a deep history being in California from quite some time ago of having been pretty deep in this world. And then that kind of probably unraveled, I think, in the 90s around the market forces and that HMOs were not really regarded that well and people wanted more open-based networks. So I think we're kind of coming back around again. When you talk about some of the interventions you have, you, you, we talked about specific or, or you generally referenced, I should say, mental health interventions. Are, are there anything in particular you're doing there? Yeah. So in the mental health space, we have in one of our regions a partnership with an organization called Quartet. And you could sort of think about Quartet as an open table sort of set up for mental health services. When a provider, particularly a primary care provider, has identified a patient as having a mental health need, then they can actually use this platform to help connect them with a provider in the community, a mental health provider in the community, to set up referrals, set up appointment, determine pieces around insurance and payment as well. So that's been a pretty useful for us to be able to at least have a platform that establishes that connection and continuity, particularly in areas where we don't have the mental health providers that are part of the organization and where we really need to connect more to independent providers or, or individuals in the community. What are you doing around the social determinants of health then? Another you know, area think, you mentioned being... Yeah, that's where I think some of our work is a little bit more nascent. You know, as our population health officer, he's been about eight or nine months in the role, is scaling up 
this is going to be a big area of focus in 2020. I think we are looking for a similar type of platform solution as well, where we can better, once we have identified that there is an individual with a need, that we can connect them to those resources that might be in the community and do those kind of warm handoffs. I think that's the work that we're looking to do in that regard. We also want to make sure that we're directing our community benefit in a very targeted way to those things that we think can impact the social determinants of health. But we have more work to do there. I would say that even though I use that term and it's kind of like industry lingo, my take on social determinants of health is that it's a bit of a euphemism for things that are very hard for us to discuss and hard for us to talk about. There are ideas such as hunger, homelessness, unemployment. If you start to use those words, right, they're, I think, much more meaningful than a very broad-based euphemism around social determinants of health. I'll sort of get off the social determinants of health piece for a little bit, but you know, the other thing is that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding there around the social determinants of health and who it impacts. Yeah, definitely. Has there been anything that has really leaped out at you since you've been at Sutter that you say, wow, here's something we need to address, or maybe the flip side is, wow, here's something that we're, we're doing that's particularly successful? One of our living laboratories for population health have a uh, very longstanding PACE program. PACE stands for Programs for all-inclusive care of the elderly. What it is, is, and this is a, a federal program, where we take full risk on an eligible population of Medicare-Medicaid patients. So they're dual eligible Medicare-Medicaid. We take full risk, so we're essentially acting like the insurer, and we provide their care. We have actually two or three dedicated centers for this population here in Sacramento. We actually have a joint venture with another organization where we built a PACE center in the past year in Stockton, California. And when you have that full risk for a dual eligible population, the types of services we provide in this center are really holistic and really true to this issue about the social determinants of health. For instance, at this PACE center that we have, we provide a gym and physical therapy and occupational therapy to get strength and conditioning so that they don't have falls in their home. We provide meals on wheels. We provide a laundry service and we have washing machines and dryers so they can clean their clothes. We actually have a beauty parlor too actually in our center so that it's not just about if you look good, you feel good, but also just to attend to good hygiene and good nail care and foot care, which is important in people who have diabetes. It's a place where people, actually, we provide socializing and recreation and games and activities because loneliness, being lonely and being by yourself is such a impact on the medical aspect of care. So this model of holistic care really speaks to the fact that 20% of a person's health is the medical care, 20% is genetics, and 60% is everything else. So we're tackling both that 20% that is the medical part and then the 60% is the other. It's a really, really cool program that we've got, and it's full risk. Wow, well, that sounds great. How does your geography affect your ability to provide pop health? You're a big system, Sacramento obviously being the core, right? Do you find it harder to provide pop health in areas as you get away from the core, or yeah. what are you seeing there? There's a, a couple things that are, are different in this organization than others. We are a large organization, and although we're 
pretty much based in Northern California for the most part. That spread of Northern California is pretty broad. It's definitely pretty broad just from a pure sort of measuring the miles between places standpoint. And then it's even worse when you think about the traffic, particularly in the Bay Area geographies that we are. So that's definitely one aspect of the challenge. The other piece that's a little bit different from other states, you know, in California, you cannot directly employ physicians. So the relationship between our physicians and the organization occurs through a foundation model, which is that we have a medical foundation that has a contractual relationship with an aligned medical group for the provision of services. So there's a bit of a sort of a, another piece with respect to working with our physicians that is not present. I don't know if there's other states that have this model, but California is certainly the most well-known for it. And I know that this is not a model that's present in other states that I've practiced in. It's not so much the geography it has some challenges to it, but probably the foundation model is a piece that's definitely, I've found coming here, very unique and very different from anywhere I've been. Given your background in the data area, why don't we turn and kind of take a little dive there because it's an area that fascinates me at least and talk about how you get your data, you know, what sources of data you use, and how do you collect it at the outset? In some respects, we're actually kind of building some of those data pieces here at Sutter and working on it. If it's okay, I'll sort of at least speak to some of the pieces at a high level. When you're doing data and analytics and population health, there's really three things that you want to know or, or three things that you're trying to work on. First, you want to know what your current state is. What's going on today in your population? who are your attributed patients? Which of your attributed patients are in the hospital? Which of your attributed patients are in the ED? So your data analytics really need to first be able to answer that question about what is the current state. Then when you know what is the current state, you need to be able to ask as the second order question, what will be the future state? Who will be admitted to the hospital? Who will be readmitted to the hospital? Who will have an acute event? Who is at risk of deterioration in their chronic disease. So you start with understanding the current state, then you go to under trying to understand the future state prediction. And then the third piece is that you want to then be able to intervene. You want to be able to intervene on something that you anticipate, that you predict that will occur in the future. You want that intervention to be built into the clinical workflow in a way that can be meaningful and impactful and then prevent the thing that you were anticipating. So it's current state, future state, and intervention. That's really where I think you want to build a data platform, an analytics platform, to be able to do all those three things, understand analysis, that's the current state, prediction, that's future state, and then intervention, which is building into clinical workflow to make a difference. So how do you go about doing that? I mean, you've got millions of patients. You can't micromanage the care for each one. Obviously, they have physicians, there are other clinicians involved. You can't just simply have a computer give everyone a care plan. But by the same token, I assume you want to standardize certain processes and you want to make sure that best practices are being shared. How do we even begin that? I think the way that I'd sort of uh, represent exactly what you said is that everybody needs something, but everybody can't have everything, if that makes sense. It's really important to be able to Stratify your population appropriately by risk, depending on what it is you're looking at. If you're looking at risk of hospitalization, risk of utilization, but it's really important that you develop some kind of segmentation or stratification scheme. And even individuals who are in the, quote, low risk probably need to have some kind of baseline 
check-in or intervention going on. And then as you sort of move up the pyramid, if you will, of risk, a stratified risk, that the intensity of the intervention increases. Do you start off saying, we're going to focus on diabetes and come up with a plan for everyone who has diabetes? Or how do you go about that? You could, if you wanted to sort of take that example, you could look at the individuals who are in the poorest level of control with respect to their chronic disease. And already doing that, you've kind of stratified the population. And then you could sort of intervene on the ones that are, in this case, have the least degree of control. The thing people extrapolate about, and I urge a lot of caution around, is when they start to do the stratification on the basis of cost. People can, and it's replicated in study after study, that there's this relatively small proportion of the population, somewhere around 20%, that accounts for a disproportionate share of costs, somewhere around 50, 60 plus percent. What folks end up doing is they end up focusing on that 20%, thinking that that will impact the 60% of costs, but it doesn't really work like that. And this is where a lot of caution has to occur when you're doing risk stratification, particularly on costs, because a good portion of that 20%, they will what we call regress to the mean. They may be high cost in this period, but a significant portion of them in the next measurement period you look at, usually on an annual basis, will be low cost or below the mean. And the reason why they regress to the mean is many people in that high cost group experience a transient event that causes them to become high cost. And then when that event goes away, they go back to a baseline state. Somebody could be high cost because they had a major trauma like a major accident. They could be high cost because they had a discrete diagnosis of a acute illness, like a malignancy. And once they hopefully get beyond that, their cost structure regresses. So you've got to be really worry, wary of this sort of regression to the mean phenomenon. It's definitely an issue that plagues doing risk stratification. And you got to be really mindful when you do your analytics as well. Can you do risk stratification targeting certain conditions, knowing that it's sort of a one-way street? Or do you find that regression of the mean is sort of, you know, occurs across the board? Regression of the mean pretty much occurs across the board for the most part. So what you need to do is look at individuals that are persistently high cost, that are persistently poor control, that are persistently having hospitalizations, period over period over period. That helps eliminate the regression to the mean effect. I hate to say it, but, you know, sort of the proof point here is that most organizations kind of in our industry, they stratify by costs, but they're not doing very well in these sort of value-based constructs, not on a monetary basis. There's a lot of reasons why. One is the investment that's made, but the second is that there's so much regression to the means. Why wouldn't I just simply target someone who has a particular condition, know that you know it's chronic, let's say diabetes, and I just don't want them to deteriorate, and that's my strategy for value-based care. It's not, hey, when someone's really sick and they've been in the hospital a bunch, I already know they're in pretty bad shape, but someone who's just been diagnosed with diabetes, the earlier the better, the sooner you intervene, maybe the less they deteriorate. Nope, I think that's definitely a valid part about the risk stratification. No disagreement there. How do you determine what interventions to make then? I mean, what's the process that you go through? 
So in general, however it is you decide to determine the risk level of an individual, I think the higher the risk, the more the intensity of the intervention, the more frequent the contact, the more the human touch component to it, the greater the, frankly, the resourcing that is associated with it. Just to go back to this example with the PACE program from earlier, one of the things they do, because you're essentially dealing with a population that in many respects, many of the individuals are all high risk. Every morning at the centers, they go through every day, every single day, they go through every patient that's hospitalized, every patient that's been in the ED, and everybody's at high risk. And they spend that level of time in their case conference every morning to go that deep. Let's go back to the PACE. That's obviously a geriatric population. Have you created geriatric pharmaceutical guidelines because the elderly respond to medicines differently than many other people? Going into people's houses and putting in handrails? Uh, you know, how are you, in the, how are you in acting the PACE, on those interventions? In the PACE program, they do make home assessments and check the environment of care. One of the big things about PACE is that we try to keep patients in their current living situation as long as possible. So they do do those assessments of the home environment. We provide transportation for them, not just to and from the center, but to their doctor's appointments. So it's very, very holistic in terms of what we do. But, you know, in a traditional fee-for-service kind of construct, those kinds of investments, strictly speaking, aren't reimbursed on a transactional basis. But when you're taking full risk on a dual-eligible population, making those investments so somebody doesn't fall and then break their hip and then land in the hospital and then land in the operating room and then in rehab, I mean, like, it just aligns so well. So with your background in data and data science, um, have you, you know, what do you think artificial intelligence is playing in in the practice of medicine and certainly in population health? Do you see it? You know, how are you experiencing it? It's really generous of you to say data science. I don't probably think of myself that I wouldn't go um, that far. And I think true data scientists would cringe at my credentials versus theirs. But right now, I think that artificial intelligence on this clinical aspect has, I'm not as super close to it in that regard. I think that it probably still has some further steps to go to work on the clinical side of things. Artificial intelligence can be used very broadly where I do think that there's a lot of value and that has been an experience in previous work, is is using machine learning to look for patterns in data to establish predictions that can be then encoded in models. I think that has a lot of value and that is a lot of work is, is great. But I think true artificial intelligence, where it's actually probably scanning the information and then intervening in clinically meaningful ways, I, I think is still a little bit off in this particular area. So you're talking more about predictive analytics then? Yeah, for sure. How has that affected you? How have you utilized predictive analytics to help guide people's care? I think a great example came from my time at Advocate where we built what at the time was one of the best models to predict readmissions in patient populations. After building this model, which had all these variables and continuously scored patients while they were in the hospital, that individuals who were at high risk at some of our hospitals got specialized discharge, specialized follow-up, specialized resourcing afterwards to intervene to prevent readmissions. So I think that was a really great example of some work that we had done. 
And are you doing or planning on doing anything like that at uh, at Sutter, of course? Or? Absolutely, absolutely. We're putting together under our Chief Population Health Officer and our health plan, our strategy on the population health and analytics piece for sure. Excellent. And anything to do with disease registries or any of that other stuff? We do have a registry tool that's homegrown and built that looks at actually performance on, I believe, particularly quality indicators in our ambulatory population. So that's that's one piece that we have here that seems to be working pretty well. Well, how are you knitting the, it sounds like you're responsible for ambulatory there, generally, among other things. How are you knitting the ambulatory in with the inpatient? I oversee a Several of our, what people might call like asset light businesses, like walk-in clinics and surgery centers, certainly we're looking to, you know, our walk-in clinics, I'll use that as an example, is a retail clinic that is in really retail accessible areas with a fixed menu of services at a defined price point that you can easily get services, very different feel than a traditional physician office or a medical office building type setting, we're looking at using this chassis now as an ability to potentially provide disease management for certain patient populations. We're looking at a pilot about being able to do pre-op physicals in this environment for our surgery center patients. So we are looking to be a little bit more expansive in how we're using some of these assets. One of the things we're seeing in our ambulatory surgery center portfolio is that the uh, complexity of the types of cases that we're seeing is increasing. We're doing joint replacements now and you know, anticipate that with CMS that we would be able to hopefully do some more of that in 2020. So do you see a, a lot of activity around people wanting to do consults over their iPads or anything like that? Are you thinking of going that direction or, or uh, are you putting most of your work into you know, the AFCs and the... No. So uh, one of the areas that's in the portfolio is uh, we do offer virtual visits for a variety of conditions, acute conditions, and we're looking to spread that virtual visit portfolio to primary care and to other specialties. We do have a pilot that we will be expanding in the organization of a full virtual practice. So we do have a primary care physician. They happen to be based out of the Bay Area, though they could be based anywhere. And they care for a fully capitated population, and they do that entire care, their entire primary care for them virtually. And that has been, we have some analyses going on right now about the effectiveness of that type of care model. But certainly... um, preliminary results and certainly the anecdotal feedback from our patients is they really like that. It's an on-demand primary care from anywhere you are that we provide 100% virtually. Wow. And is this offered through an insurance carrier or are you doing this directly outside of insurance or how how does that work? We have our own health plan, Sutter Health Plus. So this is a benefit that we've offered for a portion of the Sutter Health Plus enrollees. And is that bending the cost curve? So that's the part of the analyses that are happening right now, just to be able to verify and validate that. And you know why the reason, again, why that analysis just takes a little bit of time is you want to protect against this regression to the mean effect. So it's not exactly so that we know that we really are bending the cost curve. Okay. Well, that's fair. It sounds promising, to say the least, but uh, yeah, I guess we'll it's have to read, very, to, to read about it. It's very cool. And the funny thing is that, like, the whole practice is virtual and like maybe a very, very small number of patients have asked to actually see the physician in person to see if she was real. 
<laughs> because, <laughs> because they're always interacting with her virtually, right? And then they find out that she's real. Like they just they're like, I really just want to see you just to see if you're real. And then they'll come and they'll be like, Oh yeah, you're real. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. How do you? And, and this has to be a big deal to you. How do you ensure consistency in care? You know, if you're relying on a lot of stratification and data, the differences must be kind of hard to accept, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Eric. I think the important thing is that you strive for consistency, particularly with respect to standards, but I do think you have to be respectful of appropriate variation that needs to occur because of either the setting, the environment, or the patient. And it's not an either or, it's more of an and that you've got to balance both. You've got to balance both the need for standards and the need to have some at times acceptable variation. So it's it's not more it's I don't really see it as an either or and I think it would be probably unfair to. So how do you differentiate the good and the bad? Here's what I kind of find about the good and the bad is to understand why. Why is there a piece of feedback or response contrary to a standard and to really engage in some authentic listening as a leader to understand why as the first step. I find that when I do that or when we do that or our teams do that, there's a rationale there. It's not capricious. It's not just about that change is bad or that that there's a loss of autonomy, which may all be true, and it's not to diminish the impact of those. But I do find that not too infrequently, there is a really good reason as to why and to really be respectful and see what can be done potentially to accommodate that appropriately when you keep the patient's best interest in mind. This all leads to the, uh, I guess, the elephant in the room, that being engaging with the physicians. It's one thing to have a bunch of people with computers spitting out care plans, but the physician is a critical part of all this. How do you find it best to engage with the physicians and really keep the focus on the best interest of the patient? There's so many different models and structures and ways that you can go about that. I would say the common denominators in all of them is that you need to authentically involve physicians in the process. And when I say authentically, it means it needs to be very much upfront. It needs to be early, that it is understood that their time and that any decisions, conclusions, or feedback that they give will have value and input into a process and that there is follow-up as well. I think when any of those pieces breakdown, i.e. you don't bring the physicians in early and it's after a project or piece of work has launched or is well down the road, that the engagement of the physicians is not meaningful, that they're not making decisions, they're not providing feedback, or there's no evidence that that feedback or decision-making is acted upon. And then third, that there's not a meaningful loop of follow-up about what has been the results of their decision-making, their coming together, and their engagement. I find when any of those three, over the course of my time in healthcare, when any of those three break down, that's when it can be problematic. It also does require, I think, genuine physician leadership by physicians as well. Let's assume you have that. How do physicians respond to being told, gee, maybe we need to go a different direction here? What have you experienced there? You know, I think physicians have a real acute understanding of the challenges that are occurring in healthcare. If they happen to be within an employed model or a 
blind model. And I think they know that because they hear that from leadership and health systems. They see that if you open up a newspaper or read the news every day. And they quite frankly hear it from their patients too about the cost of healthcare and probably access being another one. So I don't think that they, I find that there is a, an acute level of understanding in the physician community. Let's turn to the patients. I just want to ask you, what role does individual responsibility play here? That's a good question and one that I think that a lot of people ask, and I don't think it has easier, discrete answers one way or the other. There's certainly a lot of organizations and companies out there that are trying to tap into aspects of motivation and changing behavior. Gosh, Eric, that one's a tough one. I might have to think about that one a little bit more. Well, you mentioned all the social determinants, so I got to admit, yeah. you, you opened yourself up to that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do patients think about care coordination? Do they like it? Are they frustrated by it? What are you seeing? Over the years, you know, what I've heard is like that so many people are trying to coordinate their care. Who's coordinating the care? You know what I mean? You've got a health plan that probably has care coordination services and is reaching out to patients and seeing how they're doing. You've got a provider office that might have a care coordination piece. You have a health system that might be providing a care coordination piece. And all these people are sort of claiming or having the rubric of coordinating care, but who's really genuinely orchestrating things and looking at that? That's one piece of feedback I've heard. Quite honestly, I've experienced that. I've experienced that in my family, maybe not as much on the care coordination side, but certainly on the disease management side, where there's all these different groups like your PBM, your health plan, your doctor, all think that they're helping to manage a chronic disease. And we're trying to, and I'm, I'm kind of left wondering a little bit about who is or who isn't. Kind of reminds me of those old disease management programs that some of the pharmacies, uh, pharma companies used to do. Yeah. And, uh, it consisted of a phone bank telling people to get their script filled and uh, some mailings. And obviously, the only plan was to get the scripts refilled. That's right. That's right. That's right. So yeah, I, I, I can see where people might get a little overwhelmed if someone's bugging them just to get their scripts filled. And then other people are bugging them about entirely different things. And the left hand and the right hand don't know what's going on. Yeah, that's right. Have you learned any particular lessons about patient engagement? Particular lessons about patient engagement? You know, any tactics, anything that, that does seem to be more successful. Obviously, yeah. you mentioned your PACE program, for example, and that's more of a almost a lifestyle situation. You know, this is honestly an area, Eric, where I think we as an industry have a long way to go. And I think we have so much to learn from other industries. And I, I keep thinking about it. I keep wondering about it. But I don't think we've made a crossover of some of these learnings and understandings. For instance, why is a certain game or an app on your phone so relentlessly addictive? And why is it for some people consistently addictive like that? And then for some, it fades and goes. And what sort of the learnings and understandings for that? I think about the girls and my my daughters, and they're like so into this like TikTok thing, right? And there's a lot of adults, by the way, who are into that. I don't know. Are you into TikTok? Do you go to that? <laughs> do you go? To, do you have that? I'm not, but I have, a, I have one child in particular who really, yeah. Well, there's plenty of adults who I know who are into TikTok, and I'm just like, what if we could channel that kind of whatever it is that's behind the whatever, for that individual, the lack of a better word, the addiction or the compelling nature 
of that app, what if that could be channeled into better nutrition? How could we bring that over? Another really great example, when we take it for granted, rewards programs like frequent flyer rewards or credit card, the reason why those programs started and they're still around is that they are for a group of individuals successful in driving behavior. What is our rewards program as an industry? What does that look like for us? What is that thing that promotes retention, longevity, loyalty in a way that, honestly, industries as varied as credit cards, casinos, and airlines have all figured out, and then the accompanying data and analytics on that? So I think we still have quite a bit of way to go to be able to tap this aspect of patient engagement. Well, you do see some of that with the employer workplace programs where, you know, sign up and you get $200 and then, gee, if you need additional help, complete this program and there's some sort of bonus. But that strikes me as being more tied towards negativity than it is positivity. It seems to emphasize more, you've got something that we need to fix because you're going to cost us money rather than just saying, hey, you can do this and be rewarded for healthy behavior. And the other aspect of those programs, Eric, is there's a lot of well-documented literature now that those programs are not effective, that they don't really drive change in aggregate, and that the folks who do the whatever, like the get your blood work checked, and they were going to do it anyways. You see a lot of employers are actually stopping those programs because they're not actually showing an impact or effect. Given your background with all the data and the analytics, how do you respond to someone who says, Pop Health, boy, it sounds like Big Brother. I mean, they're trying to control every aspect of my life. That's an interesting piece. I think it's more, I would probably say that population health really aligns to a mechanism of payment that is not traditional fee-for-service. And when you have those incentives that are aligned, and I think they actually require alignment with patients, and then the entity that pays for healthcare as well as the deliverer or provider of healthcare, I think when that alignment exists and it's very transparent, that kind of narrative gets significantly mitigated. What do you think the future holds in, say, the next five years in this field? Do you see any potential breakthroughs, anything really exciting happening? I think that organizations are continuing to look for new and innovative ways for being able to deliver on this value proposition of great quality at a more appropriate point of cost and a more appropriate level of utilization. I think it's fairly incumbent on the industry to to figure out those approaches because I think one of the few areas, I think, of genuine bipartisan consensus in this country, although they have very different ways of wanting to tackle the problem, I don't think there's any doubt about that healthcare is, quote, too expensive. And you you sort of see that as a, a common, and honestly, it's been a quite common area of agreement between the two major parties for quite some time. So I think continuing to push the innovation and, quite frankly, execution and outcomes in this area is going to be even more important in the next couple of years than it was in the past five. Well, Rishi, I just want to say thank you for your time. Great. Thank you, Eric.